Well, please keep Revelation chapter 14 open as we come to study this evening these first uh, five verses of the chapter. (coughs) Excuse me. And uh, we take as our theme the Lamb standing with his people. The Lamb standing with his people. In May 1940, following the Six Week Battle of France, more than 300,000 Allied soldiers were surrounded by advancing Nazi forces in northern France and needed to be evacuated across the Channel to England from Dunkirk Beach. The situation could not have been any graver. The rapidly advancing, power-hungry forces of Nazi Germany were closing in. Hitler's attempts to conquer Europe seemed all but inevitable. The power of his armed forces seemed unstoppable. The Allied soldiers had nowhere to go, and it seemed as though they were doomed to die. And then a, a hastily prepared evacuation plan was put into motion. More than 800 vessels, most of them owned by ordinary citizens on the English south coast, uh, they were ordered to cross the channel immediately and bring back as many soldiers as they could carry. And what is sometimes called the miracle of Dunkirk, 338,000 soldiers were rescued from France. Well, Revelation 13 might leave us feeling a bit like those soldiers might have felt uh, before the rescue came on Dunkirk Beach. Uh, We studied Revelation 13 last week and thought about the picture it gives us of Satan at work in this world through these beastly powers uh, at work to attack and persecute the church and to deceive the nations through uh, political causes, secular causes, false religions, whatever it may be. And we saw that in the case of many people, the work of Satan and the beasts is irresistible, or it seems almost irresistible. Those beastly figures are so powerful, they lead so many astray, they are so aggressive against the church. We considered this morning as we set up the the reasons why we're undergoing covenant renewal, we, we considered one of the reasons we're having it is because our nation has slipped so far away from God's word. And there is growing pressure from these beastly powers to become silent or to go with the crowd. Christians in other parts of the world, of course, feel the pressure even more acutely, persecuted even to the point of death. And so the onslaught and advance of our enemies, friends, seems inevitable. But Revelation 14 puts everything in chapter 13 into perspective for us. Revelation 14 verses 1 to 5 is very heavily tied in with Revelation 13. It's designed to show us the superiority of the lamb against the dragon and the beasts. <coughs> uh, one preacher, Vody Bauckham, has pointed out some of the ways that these two passages uh, contrast with one another. Just to highlight a few of them quickly to you. Uh, chapter 13 verse 11 tells us about a false lamb who is actually a beast. Chapter 14 now is going to tell us about the true lamb. Chapter 13 verse 4 describes false worship being offered to the beast. Chapter 14 verse 1 describes true worship being offered to the true lamb. Chapter 13 verse 16 tells us about the mark of the beast. Chapter 14 verse 1 tells us about the, the mark or the seal of the lamb and his father upon his people. 
So there are these contrasts, friends, set up between Satan and the Lamb in these passages. And the contrasts emphasize to us that in this war, there is only one winner. The Lamb is the decisive victor. So I want to think, first of all, this evening from chapter 14 about the security of the Lamb's presence. The security of the Lamb's presence, and that's presence N-C-E on the end, not N-T-S. The security of the Lamb's presence. Chapter 13 describes this swirl of chaos that Satan stirs up in the world, at manipulating politics and economics and religions and stirring them up against Christ and his people. There's that vision of the beast arising from the sea. And I said last week, the sea <coughs> is a picture of chaos and threat. Then we come to chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Stood the Lamb. As one preacher said, if that was all chapter 14 said, it would be good enough for me. After all we've read in chapter 13 about the, the dragon and the beasts, what more do you need to know, friends, than that the Lamb is standing with his people Notice that the lamb doesn't come up out of the earth or out of the sea like the beasts did in chapter 13. He's not down on their level. He's not just one more player on the scene on earth, friends. He is standing. He is standing above all of it. He's not having to fight his way through the chaos. He stands secure, untouchable, unbeatable, victorious. In in particular, John says that the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. That description is very significant. Zion, of course, is another name for Jerusalem. Symbolically speaking, the the place of God's people. Um, And in the Old Testament era, that was very much the case. To be in Zion was to be in the place blessed with God's presence where his people gathered to worship. And the description Mount Zion adds something else to the picture Uh, Mount Zion is the place where the promised Messiah descends triumphant to be with his people. Listen to Psalm 2 verse 6. We read it earlier. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set him there. He stands there. He is untouchable. He is undefeatable. He goes on in Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage And the ends of the earth your possession. Where did these beasts come from? From the sea and from the land. The ends of the earth. And the lamb owns the ends of the earth. He stands over it all. And so Mount Zion friends is a picture from the Old Testament of a triumphant Messiah. Ruling the nations united with his people. Remember earlier in Psalm 2, the beginning of the psalm, it said, Why do the nations rage? They rage against the Messiah. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 13. The nations stirred up by Satan, raging against the reign of Christ and the people of Christ. But as Psalm 2 and Revelation 14, 1 make clear, they can rage all they like. The Lamb is standing. And he will stand triumphant over it all. 
And even more wonderfully, it says he stands with his people. Verse 1 says, With him are 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We'll think more about the 144,000 in a moment, but notice for now, friends, the Lamb is with them. The saints are with their Saviour. There are, as you can imagine, different suggestions about where exactly this Mount Zion is here in chapter 14, verse 1. Is this a picture of the church in heaven right now, where our departed loved ones are in the, the interim state, their souls with Christ in heaven? Uh, or is this a picture of the church, Mount Zion, that has come down to the earth at the end of Revelation? That's, that's the picture of, of uh, heaven coming down to the earth. Well, the rest of our passage seems to suggest that this is a picture of the church in heaven. Uh, John says he hears a loud voice in heaven, verse 2. They're offering praise. They're not fighting the beast. They're offering praise. And so that suggests that they are in heaven's glory because the main activity of heaven is praise. But of course, as Christians on the earth today, friends, we know that the Lamb is no less with us than he is in heaven's glory with his people there. He is with us wherever we are, whether we're on the earth, whether we are in heaven. And it's interesting that it says that he stands with his people. I think, for example, of what happened right before Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was put to death. If you want, you can turn to Acts chapter 7. Keep your place in Revelation 14. But if you turn to the book of Acts chapter 7... And verse 54. Acts 7 verse 54. Stephen has been preaching. He has been witnessing. He, and he doesn't get to finish his sermon. Uh, his sermon is building towards the fact that. Uh, just as the Jews in the past rejected Moses and others. So they've rejected Christ. And the Jews have heard enough. And they, they're about to stone Stephen to death. Look what it says. Acts seven fifty four. Now when they heard these things they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Standing at the right hand of God. Friends, when Jesus ascended into heaven, Psalm 110 tells us, as we thought about a few weeks ago, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. But when his followers are facing the onslaught of Satan like Stephen was, when they are harassed and tempted and persecuted, the Lamb stands with us. He stands to receive the praise of heaven's glory. He stands to declare his suffering servants, his suffering saints, righteous and vindicated in his sight. The Lamb stands with his people. I mentioned in passing last week, uh, the two Margarets, some of you will know their story, Covenanter women, uh, martyred in Scotland. Uh, they were both drowned in the Solway Firth on the 11th of May, 1685, for refusing to renounce the crown rights of King Jesus. <coughs> the older Margaret, Margaret McLaughlin, uh, was tied to a post further out towards the mouth of the Firth so that the younger Margaret, Margaret Wilson, would have to watch her sister in Christ 
uh, drown and die. And as the older woman was drowning, the soldiers mockingly asked the younger Margaret what she thought of her friend now. Margaret Wilson replied, I see Christ wrestling there. I see Christ wrestling there. It's perhaps hard for us to know exactly what she meant. But only the Lord knows what Christ does when his faithful followers, friends, are in the midst of dying for him. Be assured of this, loved ones, whether we ever face martyrdom or not, as the furious dragon comes raging against you, your lamb stands with you. He stands with you in your workplace when you're surrounded by the worldly belief systems, men and women just blindly going along with the the secularism of our times. He stands with you in your home as you parents seek to faithfully open up the scriptures with your children and teach them God's truth. He stands with you boys and girls on the playground or in the corridors at school when your friends are talking or joking in ways that you know the Bible says are sinful and they want you to act in the same way. He stands with our church as we seek to be witnesses to our world. He stands with us as we gather for worship here week after week, offering our praises to him. Hebrews 12, 22, one of the, the few places you see that phrase Mount Zion in, in the New Testament. Speaking of our worship, the writer to the Hebrews says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. In other words, when we come and gather as we do this evening to worship God, we're doing the same thing that they're doing up on Mount Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem. And the Lamb stands to receive his praise. Revelation 14 reminds us where we are ultimately headed, friends, to Mount Zion, to the church made perfect, gathered up into heaven and waiting for the day when it comes down to the earth. And as we wait for that glorious day, let's not forget that the Lamb is standing with his people. I will never leave you nor forsake you, the Lord Jesus has said. The Lord is my shepherd. What else do I need? As the satanic chaos of this world swirls around us, what greater security, what greater comfort could we need than this? The security of the Lamb's presence. But secondly, the identity of the Lamb's people. (coughs) The identity of the Lamb's people. Uh, Again, chapter 14, verse 1. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now this isn't the first time that we've seen the 144,000 in Revelation. Back in chapter 7 verse 4 we read, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the nations of Israel. Now, lots of Christians who interpret Revelation differently from us, they they take this number of 144,000 literally. And they believe it refers to a group of Jewish people who will be saved at a later time in the future 
after the secret rapture of all other Christians. Uh, We haven't taken that sort of literal approach to Revelation and you'll not be surprised to hear that I'm not going to suddenly start taking a literal approach now that we're halfway through the book. Uh, Again, I just don't believe that it's the best way to understand the book. Um, Notice how the 144,000 are described in verse 1. They had his name, that's the name of the Lamb, Jesus, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. In other words, they are sealed, they are marked out as belonging to God. Friends, that is a description that applies to all Christians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul says. We are sons of God, John says. And so it doesn't make any sense that this would only apply to a a small group, 144,000. Literally speaking, that is a tiny number of Christians compared to the whole history of the world. Why would 144,000 Christians be the only ones to be described as having the Father's name written on their foreheads. It's clearly picture language. It's symbolic language. It's describing something that applies to all of us who are Christians. We all belong to the Father. Look back with me at Revelation 13, verse 8. I didn't really cover this verse last week. Uh, I was (coughs) uh, short of time, but I'm glad to be able to cover it this week. Revelation 13, verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. That is, they will worship the beast, false gods. Notice, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So when did God decide to seal you, dear Christian? Before he even created the world. That's when the 144,000 were chosen. Before the foundations of the world. That's when we were sealed. And our salvation was decided by God. How do we know if we're Christians that we'll make it to the end? How do we know that we're not going to fall for some deceptive scheme of Satan? How do we know that the church is going to make it with the beasts raging against us? Friends, because God has already decided And God doesn't change his mind. Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Same thing it says there in Revelation 13 verse 8. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons (coughs) through Jesus Christ. Or to take another verse, Romans 8 verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See the chain of salvation there. And notice, by the way, that Paul puts the word glorified in the past tense. He's already called us. He's already justified us. But we haven't actually been glorified yet. We're still waiting for our resurrection bodies. We're still waiting to be made perfect. But Paul says glorified, past tense, because it's a certainty. It's as certain as our calling and our justification. He'll bring you through every trial and every temptation, Christian. 
He'll refine you through what you suffer. And in the end, you will be presented glorious in heaven with all the saints. And the certainty of that is symbolized in this large, perfect, fixed number of 144,000. Those who were chosen and who will make it and there's no one missing. Look what else it says about uh, the identity of the Lamb's people. Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. And again, this is where our brothers who interpret Revelation literally run into a bit of trouble. Do we really think that the 144,000 is a literal number of literal virgins who will be saved in the future? Now, when it describes believers as virgins, it is symbolically saying that they have remained faithful to the Lamb despite the temptations of the world. That's what it means. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 2, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Again, clearly picture language. A picture of the church not participating in the idolatry of the world. We'll see in some of the later chapters of Revelation still to come that the, the idolatry and the sin of the world, it's It's often described, and it's the same in the Old Testament prophets, it's often described in in terms of sexual immorality, that it's it's like uh, unfaithfulness. It's like sexual sin. Uh, And that's a very (coughs) graphic and vivid way that God describes how disgusting idolatry is in his sight. And so when John says here that the 144,000 are pure virgins, It's symbolic language to say that they haven't fallen in with the idolatry and the sin of the world. We've remained faithful to Christ despite all the pressure that Satan and the beasts bring upon us. And so friends, this is the doctrine of perseverance. That the true saints of Jesus Christ will make it to the end. That we will be presented like a spotless, pure virgin bride to her husband, glorified. Verse 4 also says that the 144,000 have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And the first fruits, again, is, a, is an Old Testament picture. At harvest time, the first fruits were to be entirely given over to God, it was part of the Israelite worship. Uh, The rest of the harvest, you could do with it what you wanted. But the first fruits, all of it was to be given to God in worship. And what John is saying here, friends, is that the 144,000, they they offer themselves entirely. They are dedicated entirely to the worship of God. They are God's people. They are not like the rest of mankind given over to judgment. Notice how verse 5 describes the Lamb's people. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. They are blameless. Friends, this is what we will be someday by God's grace. Remember, this is what God said to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. And Abraham wasn't blameless and we're not blameless by nature. But we will be. 
we will be blameless. We will eventually be entirely free of the presence of sin in our lives. Again, Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's what the Lamb and the Father have sealed us for, friends. Not because of anything we have earned or achieved, but simply for the glory of God. How encouraging, how reassuring is this? The church is going to make it. We're part of a huge number of people who will one day stand with Christ, spotless, blameless, a beautiful bride, said earlier, if you were taking it literally, 144,000 is not a big number. Not in our modern terminology anyway. You could probably, I would imagine there's a stadium somewhere in the world that can probably fit maybe 144,000 people into it. But in the first century AD, when John was writing, 144,000 was a big, big number. And it's a symbolic number. 12 times 12, 12 tribes of Israel 12 apostles, the whole church throughout time and history, 12 times 12 times a thousand, a huge, complete, perfect number. That's what the church is, friends. Complete, perfect, blameless in God's sight. And part of what it is saying to us as well is that heaven is going to be packed. Don't worry, you'll have plenty of personal space, I believe, in the new heavens and the new earth. But heaven's going to be packed. Lots and lots and lots of people are going to be there. Elsewhere, Revelation describes it as a great multitude that no one could number. That's the identity of the Lamb's people. Do you live with assurance today that you belong with these people, that you're part of these people? Whose seal is on you? Whose number? The number of the beast that we thought about last week or the lamb whose name is on your lips. Who do you worship? What do you worship? Where does your mind go when it doesn't need to be thinking about anything in particular? Where does your money go when you have enough left over to do with it what you like? Do you know the lamb? Do you stand with him? Do you long for the day when with all the saints of heaven you will be presented blameless and pure to the king. So the security of the Lamb's presence, the identity of the Lamb's people, and thirdly and finally this evening, the activity of the Lamb's people. The activity of the Lamb's people. And as we've touched on already, the activity of the Lamb's people, first and foremost, is worship. If you look at verses 2 and 3, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. The picture here, friends, is of overwhelming praise. Beautiful praise, resounding praise, praise the like of which you have never yet heard in your life. The wholehearted delight of the church of Jesus Christ is found in worshipping God for the work of the Lamb. John says he hears a sound like the sound of many waters. 
wonder if you ever stood at the shoreline in Newcastle or up at Portrush. And maybe you've had the opportunity to go to Niagara Falls. That's a different level altogether. But you've heard the sound of waves crashing. And they're loud and powerful. And you get the sense that if you were caught up in those waves, you would be swept away. Well, that's like a, a tiny little drop in a bucket compared to the sound of praise that the church gives to the Lamb on Mount Zion. The harp is mentioned here. Maybe this is one of the verses from which people have gotten the misguided notion that we're going to all float about in heaven on clouds strumming harps. Uh, but the point of the, the picture of the harp here is that it's a, a sweet, beautiful sound. Uh, that, that was traditionally what the harp was viewed as, the most sweet and beautiful sounding instrument. And so it's saying that our worship in heaven, whatever form it takes, will be sweet and beautiful. They're singing a new song, verse 3. And we've thought about the new song throughout our worship service this evening in the Psalms. It means a victory song. And again, this is another reason why I think the 144,000 here is symbolic of all believers. Because it says that no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. Again, that's a description of all Christians. It's all believers, all Christians who are going to sing this victory song and who share in Jesus' victory. <clears throat> we've all had those moments, I'm sure, how we wish we've, we would have had more of them. But I hope we've all had those moments when we've been part of worship. doesn't matter whether it's a big number or a small number of people. We've been gathered and, we've been, and we haven't been distracted and we haven't had half a mind on being somewhere else. And the singing has been wonderful. And we've been part of beautiful and joyful and loud and glad worship that has moved us and stirred us. And what have we said it was a little taste of heaven. And that's exactly what it was and what worship can and should be. A little taste of what lies ahead of us on Mount Zion. The activity of the saints. Do you want to be part of it? Do you already value it and take delight in it? Singing, rejoicing over the work of the Lamb, the fact that he is purchased you and loved you and died for you? Do you look forward to being united with the church from all the ages and doing as the psalmist says, singing to the Lord with a cheerful voice, recording his saving works? If you love to do that, dear friend, you'll love heaven. That will be the main activity. Look what else the believers are doing. Verse 4. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's not a beautiful picture. It's perhaps speaking there of the activity of the saints when they were down in the earth and certainly in heaven, but I think it applies particularly to our time on the earth. We follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Remember what Jesus said to his followers If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And follow me. And to follow the Lamb means suffering now. The dragon now. The beastly powers of the world now. Temptation now. But glory afterwards. 
Notice something interesting this week, just as I was thinking about these words, uh, following the Lamb and the words of Jesus. Uh, You might remember in Matthew 8, verse 19, uh, someone comes up and boldly declares to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, before you say you're going to follow me, count the cost of following me. Don't just say it and then turn back later. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. And what I noticed is that right after that in Matthew's gospel, we read this in Matthew 8.23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. See, friends, there's what Jesus was talking about. Following the Lamb means difficulty. It means the swirling storm of chaos that Satan is uh, stirring up in our world right now. We have to deal with that and we have to go through that and we have to keep our eyes fixed on the Lamb all the way through it because he's the one who can bring us to the heavenly shoreline. And along the way, he is refining us and purifying us And making us fit for heaven for the day when we are blameless before him. (coughs) Revelation 14.5 says of these saints in heaven. In their mouth no no lie was found for they are blameless. (coughs) I think that's very intentionally reminding us of the description of Jesus in Isaiah 53 verse 9. No deceit was found in his mouth. It's telling us, friends, that in the end, we are going to be like Jesus. We're going to be blameless as he is blameless. Sinless as he is sinless. Right now, friends, whatever God is bringing into your life, whatever you're going through in your life, You're following the lamb and the lamb is making you more like him to the point where eventually you're going to see him face to face and sing his praises blameless with all the host of heaven. And so again, friends, as we close this evening, I ask you, whose seal is upon you? Whose mark? Are you following the lamb to heaven or following the beast to hell? Christian friend, do not fear, do not be discouraged as you plod on through this world in which the dragon and the beasts are at work. Keep walking in obedience, keep growing in grace and knowledge of your Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and know that as you do so, the Lamb stands with you and that we will have a new song to sing in heaven. Then I looked and behold, the Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Amen.